Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from WFIU, WTIU News. We are doing the show remotely today to avoid the risk of spreading infection from COVID-19 or the coronavirus. I'm hosting with Sarah Whitmire, the WFIU, WTIU News Director. This week, we're talking with recent IU School of Medicine graduates and an IU health doctor about what it's like to work in healthcare during COVID-19. Joining us on the program today are David Vega, a recent IU School of Medicine graduate. He will work at the Routabush VA Medical Center in Indianapolis. Rashni Duhu is the, a recent IU School of Medicine graduate. He has not yet been assigned a facility. And Jim Laughlin is a, an MD who works with IU Health Bloomington Hospital. You can join us on the program by sending your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So thank you all for joining us today. Uh, we're talking about uh, the coronavirus and COVID-19 for about the sixth straight week, I think. It's, uh, it's what's on everybody's mind. And I wanted to start today with uh, Dr. Jim Laughlin from IU Health Bloomington Hospital. You know, how has this changed your life? How, how are your days going during this pandemic? Well, it's, it's uh, turned our <clears throat> daily workflow pretty much upside down. Um, I'm a pediatrician by training, and I'm also uh, the chief practice officer for our Southern Indiana Physician Group, which is our regional physician group for IU Health. And since this has started, we've had to dramatically change uh, uh, our workflow and workforce um, within our group. Uh, to increase capacity and change our capacity at the hospital for the, to accommodate COVID with our uh, intensive care physicians, our hospitalists in our emergency room. Um, as you probably are aware and people are aware in the region, uh, we've gone to almost 100% uh, virtual visits in our offices. So many of our office staff have had to be redeployed to do other work and work from home. Um, so that we can protect our, our workers and our, and our patients in our region. So it's been dramatically different. I want to talk with our, our two medical students who have just graduated, and they, they are going to be starting um, in, in uh, the practice earlier than they thought. So let's start with uh, Roshni Du about um, where, where do you think you're going to go? And you know what, what about starting early like this? Oh, hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. Um, so <clears throat> as, a, as a medical student now graduate, um, my experience is pretty like a, a lot of abrupt changes. Um, in the middle of March, we got suddenly pulled from our rotations um, in the same way that Dr. Laughlin was talking about to minimize our exposure, to minimize our exposing doctors and um, other healthcare staff. 
Um, then a few weeks later, we were given the opportunity to graduate early to um, help provide extra support with their response. Um, at that time, about a third of our class opted to do so. Um, and then were uh, graduated um, as of a week ago, became MDs. And um, then just a few days ago, um, became aware that not too many of us are actually needed, which is reassuring that um, in Indiana, at least, the additional support um, is not required, at least at this time. So now in the meantime, I think uh, most of us who aren't working um, or who are just waiting for placement are getting ready and thinking about what our residencies will look like, which will be the next phase of our training. Um, for residency, um, depending on what specialty we've chosen will look very different for everyone. Um, people who are going into internal medicine fields or emergency medicine fields, they will be um, you know, directly working with COVID-19 patients, whereas um, people who have chosen specialties that may not be providing direct care may see the next phase of their training um, start remotely or uh, develop very differently like Dr. Lawlin was alluding to. Let me ask before I go on to uh, sure. David Vega, I want to ask you first, I mean, what, how, how prepared were you for something like this? That is, you know, had you, had this been part of your medical school training, um, how surprised were you when this coronavirus actually started hitting people in the United States? Um, that's a, it's an interesting question. We'd certainly heard about coronavirus. We learned about it in our microbiology class. The novel coronavirus, of course, is not something that anyone was prepared for. No one knew exactly what this particular viral strain looked like and what its symptoms were. And we don't even know exactly what it will look like going forward and what the manifestations might be um, for people who are recovering or what the complications might be in the future. Um, so I, I, I don't think that we were prepared for this particular um, strain, but certainly we're prepared to take care of patients. We're prepared to take care of the complications of a virus. Um, that, you know, that means managing patients who have respiratory problems, talking to families, um, providing support in whatever capacity is necessary. Those things, of course, every clinician is prepared to do, regardless of what the disease process actually is. Right. Thank you, doctor. Um, Dr. David Vega, um, could you talk about your experience? Because you actually had the uh, virus, correct? Yes, correct. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, so again, like uh, Dr. Dute was saying, uh, we had learned a bit about the virus um, and it, it was very interesting because in the beginning they had pulled all of us from rotations and wanted us to have as minimal expo exposure as possible. Um, and I think really just regulations changed, you know, day by day, week by week and seeing that they saw a need for us in, in the work, work field. Um, I, I was motivated to help out um, especially since, like you said, I, I did end up having uh, COVID back in early March uh, thankfully, I'm not recovered, um, but it does give me, um, you know, just based off, you know, uh, the immunological principles that we know so far confer some sort of immunity to the virus. Um, so it made me feel a little less anxious about entering, a, um, you know, a field right now where we might be exposed to obviously potential COVID-19 patients. 
Um, so right now I, I just finished my first shift on Wednesday. Um, we'll be working for the next few weeks as well. Um, so we'll, we'll see where that leads us. So the, uh, the experience of going, you know, so quickly from medical school and before you, before you knew it into, uh, you know, a clinical rotation, was that, uh, you know, how, how difficult was that to do to sort of change your mindset? It all happened very quickly. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting because at the end of fourth year, starting intern year, there's, you know, you go from being a medical student to being a doctor and nothing really changes in terms of your knowledge base. It's really just a period of time. And uh, everyone says intern year is the hardest year because you're learning how to kind of incorporate all these scientific principles that you learned by the medical school and incorporating that into being a practicing physician. So there's always that bit of a learning curve. I think for, for me, it's just happened to be a lot sooner than later. Um, instead of having a month or two month break before starting residency, um, it was just more of a, an opportunity that arose and just decided to step up to the challenge and being able to help out where needed. So I want to ask all three of you, I'll start with Dr. Laughlin, but you know, from your view on the ground, the, the biggest, big discussion it seems like these days is, is Indiana ready or is any place ready to reopen for business? From where you stand, from your perspective, is Indiana ready to start reopening for business? Dr. Laughlin? Well, that's a loaded question. Uh... I would have been interested in hearing what our new graduates would say. <laughs> um, but uh, I, think, I think we can be ready with proper preparation uh, and um, abiding by different principles of social distancing and, and hygiene and uh, being careful in how we, how we do it. Um, you know, we've, in our field, we've said life is not going to be the same ever again. Uh, and a lot of the things that we'll have to change are probably for, for the good. Uh, but I do think and that we, we can open up safely if, if everybody agrees to kind of follow some basic ground rules. Um, our organization as a healthcare organization is also in the early preparatory stages of trying to gradually reopen because we do know that we're going to have to provide surgical care for patients and procedures for patients and see patients not only virtually, but in person. So we have to do it, but we're going to have to do it differently. So we can, so everybody can be safe, particularly until we can develop treatments and hopefully a vaccine that will provide some protection and, and more herd immunity for the virus. Well, let's ask the recent medical school graduates, Dr. Du. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think it's important to know why we're not open right now. And, and I think it's sometimes hard to get into that data, but there are models that public health experts are using. And, and I think because the United States was a later country to get hit, some of those models are based on other countries that are faced with the same challenges with the same virus, that we can, we can use that data to, to make our own recommendations for when we should open up like the IHME based out of the University of Washington even even Dr. Carroll who's a um, Indiana University School of Medicine um, public health expert um, is making recommendations and when we when we understand where those or why we have those recommendations that makes it 
easier, but then also understanding why people want to reopen, what those concerns are, and addressing those. So I think the biggest concern, of course, is the economy and how people are struggling. And we understand that, that when, when people are hurting financially, that hurts them with their health as well. And as physicians, we care about our patients' health. Um, and if I think the biggest concern we have is if we open too soon, they will continue to struggle financially because we'll have to shut down again. And we'll continue to have these waves of opening up and shutting down. And I think like Dr. Lachlan said, until we have herd immunity or we are closer to having a vaccine, we need to be very cautious with how we proceed in reopening, but still respecting all of those concerns that people have. And let's go to uh, Dr. Vega as well. And Dr. Vega, you, you're in Indianapolis. You're, you're practicing in Indianapolis and Dr. Dew is, is there as well. And there have been protests at the governor's mansion about this. So, you know, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you feel about, there's a lot of passion about this issue, I guess. So if you could give us your best thoughts about it, that would be appreciated. Definitely. Um, and I think as Dr. Laughlin and Dr. Dew both, alluded to it's difficult because it's a double-edged sword if we start reopening business too soon you know we'll have a second wave we'll we'll have a lot more coronavirus cases and that's inevitable however you know if we keep just staying at home it was continuing with this uh self-quarantine then the the economy is at a compromise so really it's for me it has to go to you know what are we waiting for right now it doesn't seem like a vaccine is coming anytime in the near future. I know, you know, there are people that are working on it, but there's nothing promising as of right now. So we do need to start opening, reopening business slowly and gradually. And it, it, what we have to do is we have to have screening efforts. Um, for example, every time anyone goes into the VA, you know, they're screened in terms of their symptoms, anyone that has fever, chills, cough, you know, any sore throat, diarrhea, et cetera. And if they, you know, screen yes to any of those questions, they, you know, they have a further screening and um, could, uh, get a COVID screening as well. So some sort of measure where there's at least some screening going on to reduce that risk of exposure um, would be very beneficial to at least reduce the number of um, people that would be exposed and contributing to that, that potential surge you would have if we start reopening business. Today on Noon Edition, we're talking about the recent COVID-19 related events in Indiana. We're also talking with uh, people who are working in medicine during this time. If you have uh, questions for us, you can participate by um, tweeting us at Noon Edition, or you can send comments and emails to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Dr. Laughlin, it seems like every week uh, we still continue to have questions about testing. Um, how is testing going with IU Health? And, you know, people send us questions all the time about, you know, what do they do if they want to be tested? Well, testing has been one of the big frustrations, as, as you're aware of, uh, throughout the United States uh, for various reasons. Um, right now, uh, we're able to test our hospitalized patients, um, healthcare workers, and first responders. Um, and outpatients where having the test would make a big difference. Those are, have been the priorities to start with. Uh, 
because of limited supply, but as we've been able to expand the capability for testing, it's now expanded to, uh, for instance, as we reopen, as we plan on reopening, all of our uh, patients getting surgery will be tested preoperatively for their protection and the staff's protection. Our OB patients delivering in the hospital will all be tested. Many independent labs are opening testing sites, so the ability to, for the general population to have testing done will be tremendously increased. The, the issue is that many of these tests are not extremely accurate, and um, we're going to have a lot, need to have a lot more experience uh, and, uh, and research to decide which tests are the best test. Uh, do we test for uh, antibodies after the illness? You know, uh, David uh, mentioned, you know, he's had the COVID virus. So how long do the antibodies protect him uh, before they wean away and, and aren't protective for him? And, so there, there are a lot of unanswered questions that we have uh, regarding testing, which is, I think, why IU Health has been cautious in, in uh, their testing procedure because they want to use it judiciously and, and hopefully not put people at risk with inaccurate results. Now, it's you, extremely important as we try and reopen the economy that we have some testing means that's reliable. Though. Uh, David Vega, as you know, Dr. Dr. Laughlin just mentioned that you, you know, not only are a, a physician, but you had the the disease. Um, we haven't had anybody who's recovered from the disease on the program yet. So, can you talk a little bit about what it was like? Absolutely. Uh, I think one of the most frustrating parts about the, having and experiencing the virus is the duration of symptoms. So, for me. It, I remember experiencing fever, chills, fatigue, uh, muscle and body aches for about a week, a week and a half. So in the beginning, it almost felt like a flu, um, but worse, like the worst flu you've ever had. Um, but it just wouldn't go away. It, it, I think that was the, the scariest part about the virus. And for me personally, it took about a week to get my results back. So in that interim, I was just kind of wrapping my head around all the things that it could have been. So I found out that it was COVID-19. So um, other than that, uh, thankfully, it, the, the symptoms you know, dissipated. But I, I think just that the duration of symptoms is probably the scariest part for many. If I could add, um, Dr. Vega actually had contracted the virus well before any, there was really much going on in Indiana. It was at the, at the beginning of March. Um, and so he kind of had it and recovered before Indiana really uh, had any stay-at-home measures put in place or really was experiencing any problems with COVID-19. So um, really got hit with it quite early in the process. And that, that's one of the issues too, isn't it, uh, Dr. Dew, is that a lot of people are walking around with it, they're asymptomatic and could be, you know, could be walking around with the virus and and then eventually maybe they will show some symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. I think there was a study released just this morning that uh, they did a sample in New York where 21% of people have antibodies to it and they never had any symptoms. Now, of course, like Dr. Laughlin was alluding to, we don't know the sensitivity and specificity of these tests. Um, we, you know, we, there's a lot that we don't know, but um, of course, if someone had, was an asymptomatic carrier, passed it on, someone else felt symptoms like 
it's very hard without contact tracing and a lot of public health resources to be able to calm the spread of the disease. Um, this, I, I might add that um, along those lines, it was originally thought that um, you, you weren't contagious if you were asymptomatic, uh, but all the data coming out now shows that that asymptomatic infection rate may be up to 25% of the people that get it. And, and my being a pediatrician, my hunch is that a large, a large vector of that spread is probably in our young people and kids. Uh, COVID virus of other strains is probably one of the more common causes of just common colds in kids. So the question I ask myself all the time is, why are the kids not getting really sick with this? And it's primarily a disease of adults. And it's entirely possible that they have some cross immunity from other COVID viruses that they spread through daycares and schools over the years that's protected them in some way. But the fact that you have 20, could have potential 25% of asymptomatic people that, are, that can spread this virus is really pretty scary. So before I, I toss it to Sarah, because I know she's got questions, um, just to clarify, so if you do get a test and you're asymptomatic, it will still show up, correct? If the test is accurate, some tests have been only shown to be 20 to 25% sensitive and specific. I see. Okay. Sarah? Uh, the one that IU Health does is uh, is closer to 75 to 80%, so it's more reliable, but still not 100%. David, I just want to go back to something you said earlier about we need to start gradually reopening the economy. So something I know we've been talking a lot about in the newsroom is just like, what are you looking for in order to say now is the time to start doing this? I guess, um, like what kind of criteria should we be meeting in order to start reopening? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and definitely, I think we'll take coordination with our state officials and just public health representatives to really find, you know, that, that sweet spot. Um, it, it does have to be a gradual process. Um, it is hard to say what exact measures we were looking for. I know we, we, we already started flattening the curve and, and uh, you know, we're starting to see numbers go down. Um, but, you know, I think especially the worrisome thing is that, for example, I'm working in the emergency department. We're seeing less patients than we usually do. And, um, you know, are, are these patients that usually come in with heart attacks, with strokes, are, you know, are we really just having less or are they just staying home because they're scared to go out? So I think it's, it's affecting um, healthcare in, in many ways that we have to address. Um, I, th I think we, we just have to start gradually, but have some sort of measures to, to reduce the risk, you know, having some screening protocols, um, having some sort of accessibility to testing in case any, you know, patients or any, any, uh, people, uh, business workers, you know, screen positive to those tests. All right. You're listening to noon edition as we talk with some medical, uh, providers about COVID-19. We have uh, recent medical IU school of medicine graduates, Dr. David Vega and Dr. Roshni Du, uh, and we also have Jim Laughlin, uh, an MD with the IU Health Bloomington Hospital. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition and send us questions that way, and you can also send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Because we are doing this um, remotely, we can't take any questions by phone today.
Sarah? Oh, sorry, Sarah, I thought you had another question. So we have gotten questions. Uh, we did get a question from um, one of our listeners about the need to wear masks and that, you know, they, they've read different, um, different, I guess, news reports about how effective the masks are and what you should wear them for. So could somebody um, answer that? One of you, one of you doctors. One of you. Yeah, I can, I can start. Um, so the CDC guidelines are currently that everyone should wear some type of protective covering over their face when going out in public. This doesn't uh, replace the need for social distancing or staying at home whenever possible. Um, it should be a cloth covering if, if possible to um, allow the more the surgical the N95 masks to be um, in the healthcare system. Um, the cloth coverings are not as effective as the surgical masks to the N95s, um, but they are they are significantly more effective than nothing. And they become even more effective when everyone is wearing them. Um, as far as the, the direct percentages, I, I, I think there's, I've seen numbers somewhere in the 70s. I don't think people are exactly aware, um, but they of course become more effective if they're cotton, um, if they're double layered, if you're wearing them as a tight fit around your both nose and mouth make sure it's tight fitted around your face um, and also make sure you're removing it without touching the mask itself, remove it from behind the ears, wash with soap and water after every use and allow to dry um, with sunlight. Um, so all of those are measures you can take to make that the use of the cloth mask more effective for you. Sorry. I might add also, I, IU Health has pretty strict criteria in what uh, instances different masks should be worn. So the N95 is uh, um, the most effective at filtering and prevention of the viral spread. Uh, surgical masks are uh, somewhere between 50 and 70% with studies with COVID, other COVID viruses, viral strains. Cloth masks are probably somewhere between 30 and 50%. But if you have two people wearing a mask instead of just one, do a little bit more protection. Uh, the que other question is, can these masks be re-sterilized and reused? I think for the... from Jack in Bloomington, just wanting to know your all's perceptions about news coverage and what the news has gotten right, um, what it's gotten wrong, and what has been sensationalized. So I don't know who wants to jump in first on that. Well, I'll, I'll jump in and start and, and I'll let my recent medical school graduates chime in. Uh, obviously, uh, 
um, not too much news is, is presented anymore in an objective format. So much does get sensationalized, but unfortunately, uh, this has been a pretty sensational uh, event for us. It's something that, you know, I've been in healthcare for 40 years, counting my student uh, time, and have never seen anything like this. So uh, it's, it's definitely different than anything we've ever experienced before. And we um, feel like the public uh, news media can be very much of an asset for us in, in, uh, in helping us promote uh, healthcare habits that will help us get through this, but um, not all the information is accurate as, as you know, and it's, it's often difficult for the average citizen to sort that out. Yeah, I think an additional challenge is also that it's uh, evolving. The situation is evolving so quickly and uh, everything changes so quickly too. Um, and that, that, is, that is hard to deal with um, in any situation when, when information is continually changing and people are unable to make plans and move forward with their lives. And I think um, playing, playing on, on those fears, um, it, it has been a real, real challenge. Um, I think for 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 people for pe people tune into um, to, to broadcasts and ch and ch and uh, news media that that plays to those those fears. The the CDC I think has done a good job at trying to uh, give daily updates uh, that are as accurate as as they can be regarding uh, the status and in terms of the where we are with the epidemic and what medicines are effective and what uh, is the recent epidemiological evidence of uh, doing things to protect ourselves. The Indiana State Board of Health has a daily uh, update, which is a really good update on their website that kind of gives us this, the status of the, of the epidemic as well. And we have daily calls throughout our system with IU Health where we are continually updated uh, with the situation uh, with IU Health. And we're trying very hard to uh, push that out to the public so that we can be a trusted source of information. To add on, I, it's definitely to complicate another layer, I think, just being in the year two, 2020 and having the presidential elections you know, this year, complicate the mix a bit more in terms of just presenting information in a non-unbiased fashion. Um, but I think there's, like Dr. Laughlin said, going to the numbers, um, the numbers aren't going to lie and, and seeing the addresses, you know, from the people, the representatives themselves, as well as going to reliable sources. Um, I know Snopes is pretty reliable in terms of just seeing, you know, seeing things that are actual factual, not things kind of debunking any myths that are out there. And it's, it's very hard and it can be confusing, you know, for, for everyone out there, but just continuing to focus on the statistics, you know, see what the CDC has to offer and, um, you know, fact checking, you know, making sure it's not just coming from one media source. So I, I just have to thank you all for those answers. That was a tough question. And I would just say, you know, as a veteran of the media for over 40 years myself that, you know, we've never faced anything like this either. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a disease that I think all of you can verify if, you know, you get a flu-like disease like this, and then within 
you know, 10 days or two weeks, you could be dead. That's just something that, that um, people have never been writing about before and trying to trying to vet all the information in the days of social media and all the information that's flying around is not an easy task. Um, I will tout our show, Noon Edition, because Dr. Laughlin, we've had IU health experts on here every time we've done a show and, and you guys have been more than open to joining us to try to help sort out all these issues. And I, I really do appreciate that. And I know the rest of the folks at the station do too. Um, and I, I, I might add, you know, as, as a kudos to the media, they have come, they have shown the human part of this very well in many cases. Uh, when you look at some of the, some of the special uh, stories they've done on families that have been uh, affected by this, uh, healthcare families and workers that have, that have uh, been on the forefront. And, and the, the stories have been touching. And I think it's a real credit to our, to our, the people uh, in, in our country that they can, they can rally together for a common cause. And, and it's, it's really brought out um, a, a side of us that, that I think uh, often our politicians uh, aren't able to, to enjoy expressing. Uh, and you've captured that in many instances. Dr. Du, you, you had uh, said earlier, you um, indicated that you could say a little bit more about reopening the economy and some of the things that you would be looking for. I mean, that's another, it's one of those hot potato issues. It's become very political, but from a physician standpoint, yeah. what, what are you looking for? Sure. I'll, I'll refer to actually Dr. Aaron Carroll. So he's a um, professor at the university or the Indiana University School of Medicine. Um, he published an article in the New York Times uh, just a week or two ago. Um, and so these are just four measures that he's looking for objectively. Um, so one of them is that and it's a state by state approach because I don't we're not going to open the whole country at once. It's going to be state by state. Um, and I think even some states are adopting regional approaches, as we've heard about. Um, one of the measures is that there must be a sustained reduction in cases for at least 14 days. Um, in, in Indiana, I think that's projected to be mid-May. Um, the state is able to conduct monitoring of confirmed cases and contacts. So that would be a large force of contact tracing. The state needs to be able to test everyone who has symptoms. Um, so that would be much more expanded testing beyond hospitalized patients, or patients who are severely ill, healthcare workers, et cetera. Um, and then the last one would be that the hospital should not be overwhelmed. They should be able to treat safely all patients requiring hospitalization, as well as provide healthcare to all other patients who'd be requiring it, which um, as Dr. Lawlin alluded to, we've put a lot of other healthcare um, procedures and patients on hold right now. So those are the four measures that he recommended. Yes, please go ahead. Yeah, I just want to ask all of you to follow. You can follow up first and then the others can join in. It seems as if the uh, a lot of the dire um, predictions about healthcare being, the healthcare facilities being overwhelmed, at least in Indiana, have not come to pass. Do, are, are we doing well with the number, with the supply of PPEs and ventilators and all of those things. And I think you said earlier that not that many, not, not as many um, hospitals needed the medical students to, to join their staffs at this point anyway, either. So, so. I, I think Indiana is, is in a fairly good position. Um, if you look at Indiana, Ohio, uh, Kentucky, Illinois, Michigan, 
even though Michigan and Illinois have been hit harder, uh, we've been pretty consistent about shutting things down, which I think has really helped flatten that curve. In terms of uh, supplies and capability, uh, we get a daily report, uh, which matches IU Health and statewide capabilities. And like uh, today, uh, IU Health resources show that we have enough PPEs or protective uh, equipment on hand for the next two to six months. Um, we have uh, an adequate supply of drug therapy, even though the, the drugs that we're using are not proven yet. Uh, our bed utilization for ICU beds is about 58% capacity. Our non-ICU beds is 40% capacity and uh, ventilator uh, use is only about 34%. So we have, we have a significant capacity and we're prepared for for surges and we're prepared for a bigger surge than we got. Thank goodness it wasn't as bad as some of the other um, states and metropolitan areas, but uh, I think we're in good preparation, uh, good area of preparation for that. All right, we have three medical professionals with us on the program today. You're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU. If you want to call us with a, your question, or you have a comment, please do so. You can't call us, but you can send it to us at Noon Edition on Twitter, or you can send it by email to news at indianapublicmedia.org. So we've gotten you know, lots of different questions, and Sarah, I think you're, you're sort of monitoring those. What, what have we had come in today? Can you, I'm wondering, maybe this is for Dr. Laughlin, if you can talk about what this might look like this winter with it being flu season as well. And then do we have to worry about COVID-19 on top of that? Well, that's, that's the thing that everybody's worried about right now is what happens when, if we reopen and we're confronted with the normal seasonal flu that goes around every year. Um, uh, and we're anticipating that, that we will have some more surges of the COVID virus until we have effective vaccine or treatment for that, or more herd immunity. So it does mean that we're gonna, have, if, if we open and how we open, uh, we'll have to be different than, than life was before if we're gonna be safe and protect our citizens and healthcare providers. We seem to go over this question, um, but I think research is continuing to go on. So I'll, I'll ask you, what's the latest research on, uh, changes in temperatures, whether the heat could affect this virus or whether, you know, very cold weather could affect the virus. Is there any research that shows either way? Dr. It, Laughlin? It's, it's kind of a wimpy virus. People call it a wimpy virus, even though it's deadly. Uh, it, it's very heat sensitive. Um, and so uh, the question is whether summer will, will kill it. Temperature of 158 to 60 degrees will kill it. Um, but we're not going to get that hot this summer, hopefully even with global warming. Um, but um, we do expect that the summer will bring some relief, although uh, if you look at the outbreak worldwide, it's, it's not, it doesn't seem to be too specific there. So I'm not sure if heat is going to be as much of a factor uh, in terms of uh, controlling the virus as some of our other measures are going to be. All right. I know we had a question. We've had several questions out of a couple of 
hot spots in Indiana. And could one or all of you talk about, you know, why a certain rural community might have a really high incidence of COVID-19 while others seem to be pretty much free of the virus? Is it just a matter of, you know, one or two people got there and it just spread? There, there are a few things that we do know in, you know, obviously nursing homes are, are potentially a hot spot and have been in South Central Indiana. Uh, we've had a few outbreaks in nursing homes and it's very difficult to keep it from spreading uh, because it, it, it's in a very vulnerable population. So they have a high mortality rate if it affects them. Um, there have been uh, some groups that have not chosen to practice social isolation uh, as we've been asked to do. Uh, often those uh, can be church groups or other community groups that, that have, have, have not been real good about that. And so even though the, the uh, incidence is, is less in the rural communities, there are little hot spots. And, it, right. and I think part of it is because we just can't predict who's got who's got the virus ahead of time. With, with yeah, there's a, there's yeah. so much we don't know, right? Yeah. Speaking of rural areas, we did get a question about the Amish community and if we've heard anything about the virus's impact in those areas. Um, do any of you have any information on that? Well, uh, the Paoli, um, uh, area in Orange County uh, in the Amish is is where a lot of our Amish are concentrated and there have been um, cases there and some deaths in Orange County but by and large it's been a, a low low percentage of the statewide numbers. Dr. Vega here's a question that has come in uh, during the last week that I'm sure that you can answer. It says, are hospital workers tested again before returning to work after having the COVID virus? It's a good question. Uh, not necessarily. Um, so like Dr. Du alluded to earlier, I was actually infected early March and was recovered by March 23rd, 24th around then. Um, so just because of the big interim of time, it's now been almost a month since I've um, experienced any symptoms. I was not retested. Okay. Do you think that is that, uh, I think that the questioner followed up with, if not, why not? Is that, is it just that, you know, you probably have built up the antibodies or, or what? Right. Yeah. And I've been involved in a lot of different studies, you know, especially a lot of studies, you know, looking at plasma donations and things like that. Um, look to see, you know, antibody titers and things like that. And um, I, I actually, it was very interesting. One of, the, one of the studies I was a part of, it showed that I was three times fold the normal immune response in terms of an antibody response, um, showing um, good immunity, you know, towards the virus. In terms of regulations, I'm not exactly sure why. I remember once I um, was starting to feel okay, again, I asked my healthcare provider about a retest um, and was told uh, no at the time uh, because of availability of tests and was just told, you know, by my provider. Um, 
that as long as I'm asymptomatic for an interim of time, I, I should be okay to, um, to continue to, to continue on. So just to clarify again, we've, we've done some quite a bit on testing, uh, in the last week or so, but it, you do have to have a doctor's request doctor's orders to be able to get a test in Indiana. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. All right. Thank you. Short answer is good enough for me. Um, so for both of you students, and I guess I'll start with Dr. Dew, um, one third of your class decided to go ahead and graduate early and start work, make yourself available to start working. The other two thirds didn't. Have you had discussions with various people about, you know, the, the reasoning for going ahead and graduating early and the reasoning for perhaps not graduating early and staying in medical school? Oh, sure. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think everyone who graduated early, well, I'll, I'll, go, I'll, t I'll talk a little bit about the process. So our clinical rotations, the last day was actually March 31st. So we finished a little bit earlier than most medical schools do um, as a part of our normal curriculum. Um, and then we have a month of transitions to residency in April, from April 1st to April 30th. So that was basically expedited until April 10th for those of us who wanted to graduate early um, so that we could graduate on April 15th. Um, on April 30th, everyone will be done. And then everyone who didn't graduate early will graduate on May 15th. So um, most everyone is done with clinical rotations. Um, and then it was just a matter of if we could expedite that month, if, if you could finish your work by April 10th, then you could graduate early. Um, so logistically, it was quite simple it, um, to do that, to finish the work earlier. Um, and people who um, wanted to make themselves available, the number one reason was that I am um, at the stage of my training where I'm a month away from, from doing this anyway, and I am available, and I w went to medical school to be able to help people, and of course, of course I would. It was, it was a non-decision. Um, for people who um, decided not to graduate early, it was, the, the reasons I heard were, um, one, one of my classmates had a baby due the first week of um, April, um, so that was a logistical reason. Um, someone else um, is, was closing on a house at the end of April. Um, other people had already moved back home and so were not actually physically present in Indiana anymore. Um, so also logistics, um, but, but were still willing to help if their situation had been different. So, yeah, go ahead. Uh, Dr. Beggy, you can answer that and then I have a follow-up, so. Sure, yeah, uh, just one other point as well. I think some of my classmates, you know, speaking to them about their decision, uh, some of them live at home with family or live with significant others. So, of course, jumping into the workforce now, there's always that chance of exposure. So just to kind of limit that potential exposure and spreading it to their significant others or family members, especially parents or any other elderly family members, uh, was, a, was a, another big concern for them. So I think, like Dr. Dute said, it's multifactorial. Um, however, there's... There's, I don't think you can go wrong either way. So for both of you, how's this experience uh, maybe changed your mindset or reinforced your mindset about being a physician? <laughs> that's, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't have any regrets, certainly. Um, 
going from being a medical student to being a physician, I think I've become more aware of, of being part of the physician community. Um, and I, I say that just not wanting to get too much into, but we've heard about physicians being fired for speaking out against, uh, you know, unsafe working environments and things like that. Um, it's made me more aware of those issues. I think that would be the only acute change about going through this process at this time. All right. Dr. Vega? Yeah, I think for me personally, I, and I'm going to be starting my residency in emergency medicine. So definitely right up my alley. I think for me, it confirms my calling even more. Like Dr. Dude said, you know, we go into medicine, you know, because we want to help people. We, we really want to, you know, see an improvement in someone's health care. And in emergency medicine specifically, the reason why I fell in love with that field is because no matter what, regardless of whether a patient can financially afford, you know, a treatment or a life-sustaining measure, you know, we're there for them and we're there to take care of their life, you know, whether it's resuscitation or, or treating whatever complaint that they come into the ED for. And that was really a big draw for me. So seeing that there's, you know, a big need for that, um, I was definitely inclined to jump in. And if anything, just confirms that, that you know, this is a calling, this is something I'm passionate about. Where will each of you go next? And how will this change, perhaps change your um, professional transition overall? So I, I guess I can start. I'll, I will be starting emergency medicine residency at the University of Miami, uh, Jackson Memorial Hospital um, in South Florida. So for us, we typically start orientation in June. Um, we are still, they're still having conversations about whether or not this orientation will occur in person or if it will be online via Zoom. But what my residency program has done to make sure that we are adequately prepared going into residency is they've released a set of pretty much an online curriculum for us to do in the eight weeks leading up to residency. So just different resources for us to review as emergency medicine physicians, things that we should know going in. Um, and normally we would kind of have more um, in-person orientation, things like that, but just because there's so much in the air about whether or not this will occur in person or over, over Zoom. They just want us to be more prepared than usual. So at least my residency program is starting us early and we're having weekly sessions with our program director and assistant program directors to discuss these topics um, to just really prepare us. Mm-hmm. All right, Dr. Dute. Yeah, so I'll be heading to Duke University in North Carolina to start a neurology residency in June. Our orientation also may be remote. Um, and my first year will actually be in internal medicine, so treating patients that are admitted or in the ICU. Um, I think it's the differences are twofold. Um, one, that we'll be spending more time treating patients that have COVID-19 um, and less time in specialties like cardiology or gastroenterology. We'll be spending more time actually um, on like the general medicine floors, um, but then actually less time in the hospital because they don't or healthcare providers in general, they're having less people at a time on a team or in the hospital just to uh, reduce exposure. So it'll be a little bit of a change in what previous classes have experienced. Um, It'll be my normal experience, but it'll be different from uh, what I was expecting. All right. And in about the last 15 seconds that we have, uh, (laughs) Dr. Laughlin, could you just uh, tell our listeners what, what you hope that they'll do in the next 
um, you know, the next week or so until we open up? Well, I would ask that our listeners do what we've been probably preaching all along, and, and that is that we want you to protect yourselves first. And so practicing frequent hand washing, uh, staying at home if you're sick, um, practicing good cough etiquette and not touching your face, uh, wearing a mask if you are out. Um, and that also protects other people as well. And All right. That's good. That's good. Thank you for that. We are out of time. I want to thank, that was Dr. Jim Laughlin from IU Health Bloomington Hospital. I want to also thank Dr. Roshni Dute, who is a recent IU School of Medicine graduate, and David Vega, Dr. David Vega, who's a recent IU School of Medicine graduate. Uh, for my co-host, Sarah Whitmire, and producers Benta Boutier and John Bailey and Matt, St Matt Stonecipher, engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, Fiber Internet, Streaming TV, Home Security, and Automation in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in these health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.